rather somber passage from 1 Corinthians, St. Paul has a great concern about his Corinthian flock. And he tells them, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, that's in bold because that's from the verb eucharids, you, you, well, there are a couple of different forms of it. Eucharist means thanksgiving. So that's the word that's going on here. When he had done that, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You've all heard this at Mass. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the somber downer part. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And just pause there and look up from your nose and don't read the rest of it. We think, we hear that word, at least Catholics think, okay, we know what Paul's talking about. We need to examine ourselves. We perform an examination of conscience. And yes, that's well and good to do before we present ourselves to receive Holy Communion each time. See if there's any sin that needs to get dealt with, right? In confession before. But I don't think that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. When he uses this language here, he's got a different idea in mind. And he explains what he means there. So let it, So starting in verse 28 again, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for, here's why, here's what the examination is supposed to do. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So for Paul, it's, uh, maybe it kind of goes hand in hand with presenting yourself in an unworthy state because there's sin in your life that needs to get dealt with first, right? Um, but I think what he's talking about more specifically is just general casualness and an unawareness of who is in front of us right now and, and our failure to see in this thing that is being held up the presence of our Lord. So um, somehow, through the eyes of faith, we're meant to understand that though it looks like a wafer and tastes like a wafer and feels like one, and what's actually in front of us is the true actual body and blood of our Lord. And people are failing to see this. Hey, welcome. And, uh, and this is why, and then this is the big downer part. Paul's saying if some illnesses and even some deaths result from this failure to discern that it is Jesus here and you're receiving anyway. So it's a big deal for him and for the Corinthians, for all of us. It's in our scriptures. So on that big deal kick, 0.2, next to the papacy, the church's teaching on the Eucharist, and I'll define it more specifically below, may be what separates the Catholic Church most starkly from other Christian traditions. For no other tradition, maybe with the exception of the Orthodox denominations, believes, number one, that Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity are present with us as the substance of what appear as bread and wine. And that, too, Receiving this substance is a necessary part of what it means to love Jesus, to believe his teaching, to follow him with one's whole heart, and to receive with thanksgiving, there's that word, 
the gift that he wants to impart to us. Many, this is kind of a sad thing for us Catholics. If you're reading ahead, you know what I'm talking about. Many non-Catholics are clear, even if they view it as incorrect, that the Catholic Church teaches that the elements of bread and wine undergo a substantial change. Not just a large change. That's what we, we usually use the word substantial, like a really big one. And it is, but we're thinking more technically here. That their fundamental substance changes from bread and wine into the body and blood of our Lord. Though the accidents, which is technical philosophical talk for those features that we perceive with our senses, so color, the flavor, the shape of the wafer, you know, all that remain remains. But the substance that's carrying those perceivable secondary qualities. If we think the primary matter on which the secondary qualities are, are observed and experienced, that's what undergoes a change. And it's a miracle that God does this. So it's it's not transformation, the bottom of your notes there. The form stays the same, so it's not transforming, like transformers, but it's transubstantiation. And what I'm saying is many non-Catholics know that. They know that that's what the church believes. Unfortunately, next page, many Catholics are less clear about the teaching of their own faith tradition. This was shown by a recent Pew study, I think there have been quite a few actually, which discovered that Half of Catholics in the U.S. correctly answer a question about official church teachings on transubstantiation, that during communion, the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. The other half incorrectly say the church teaches that the bread and wine used in communion are just symbols of the body and blood, as you got 45, or say they're not sure. I'm not sure where the 1% went, but I'm just citing it from the Pew Forum. I guess just maybe like a, yeah, and they or error, or whatever. So what does Eucharist mean? I kind of pitched an easy thanksgiving is the basic term, the thank offering. It's a special category of offering we read about in Leviticus five times. comes up especially in the Psalms 12 times. The word itself gathers up within it the sacrifice of praise. And sometimes we talk about worship as giving glory and honor to God. And it's different from praise. Praise is more thanking God for certain things. Um, So, you know, if we differentiate between worship and praise, this is the sacrifice of praise, of thanksgiving, which Christ offers on the cross as the culmination and conclusion of the larger ritual of the new Passover he began with his disciples the night before. By the way, we probably don't have time to do this whole thing, but the Passover what the Israelites in Egypt uh, did before the Exodus, right? They, a lamb, is, they put the blood on the doorposts, right? And then the angel of death went through Egypt and, and wiped out any, it, the, the firstborn of the homes that didn't have the, the doorpost blood coated. Uh, that's the celebration meal okay? uh, that Jesus sort of reinstates or... Uh, there's another word I'm looking for. I'm not finding it, but um, reconstitutes uh, in the Last Supper. And what's interesting is that that Passover meal throughout its history came to be ordered around four cups. Uh, So a a cup, so a four-course meal, really, with four cups of wine representing the shift. You know, first cup of wine, then the first part of the meal, and then it goes four parts. And in the Gospels, you can kind of track these 
the, the, where these are in the meal that he celebrates on that Last Supper Thursday night with his disciples. But there's a cup that's missing. There are only three cups in the meal. So you know what happens after they have the Last Supper? They go out to the Mount of Olives and they pray. And what does Jesus say? Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me. What cup? Just the cup of suffering that he's anticipating undergoing here in a minute or the next couple of days. Uh, we don't know exactly what cup he's talking about. And uh, he gets to the cross and uh, he's, he's suffering and there's a lot of stuff going on. And John makes clear that he's initially offered a sponge with vinegar or something on it, right? And he declines it the first time. And, uh, and some other things happen, and John clarifies in his gospel that these things are happening so that all of the Old Testament prophecies might be walked through, might be fulfilled, right? And then, at such a point when it's, when it's all fulfilled, he says, I thirst. As in, give me the fourth cup to conclude the meal. And he realized, like the lights go off, this whole passion event of, starts uh, inside of the Last Supper. So the Last Supper starts, and then the Passion is inside of this, and he doesn't conclude the Last Supper meal until the Passion's complete. And he's, he's, and he's fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies, and he says, fourth cup, let's finish the meal. And then he breathes his last. And, and, so you, and then, then you realize, oh, this is how you and I, and every generation prior to us and, and after us, this is how we participate in the crucifixion of Christ is we consume the meal. So he gave us his gift of the passion inside of this meal that he shares with us forever. So that's that's uh, so to to consume this meal, to be to participate in the meal and to eat the meal is to live into the passion as the body of Christ and to become part of it. Anyway, that's uh, getting a little far afield. Um, we don't have to do all these, uh, these definitions, but a few of them are helpful. Um, that first one we've already done, 1.1. This is from sections of the Catechism, 1328. It's called Eucharist because it's an action of thanksgiving to God. Got some good Greek words there. The Lord's Supper, uh, which we've, we've mentioned because of its connection with the supper the Lord took with his disciples on the eve of his passion, and because it anticipates the wedding feast of the Lamb in the heavenly Jerusalem breaking of the bread, the memorial of the Lord's passion, skipping down to 1330 there, 1.3. Uh, a bunch of names here. The and this is, this is probably important for us. The holy sacrifice, because it makes present the one sacrifice of Christ the Savior and includes the church's offering. The terms holy sacrifice of the Mass, or sacrifice of praise, or spiritual sacrifice, or pure and holy sacrifice, lots of variations here, are all used since Christ's sacrifice completes and surpasses all the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, all the animals that were slaughtered and the offerings that were made, right? But here I want to dial back, pump the brakes a little bit, and grant that for a lot of non-Catholics, this is problematic, this language of sacrifice. And it's because of the way that certain texts, like these Hebrews texts, are read in a non-Catholic context. So let's read them together and we can kind of see the tension. Hebrews 7.27 reads, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, 
first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. So if we call the Mass a sacrifice, but we also say, hey, y'all, it's really great to go to daily Mass. Non-Catholics hear that, and they, and they maybe understandably think, wait a minute, isn't there a contradiction there? Is, you know, aren't you sacrificing Christ daily? It says here in 727, no need to do that. Or Hebrews 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true, I think it might, maybe should read was, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices which, which are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. So again, that whole issue of repetition being kind of a problem for certain understandings of this text. Or later in that same chapter, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's exactly what we're talking about at the Mass, though. This is for the reparation of sin. So isn't this a contradiction? Isn't this a problem? Verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I thought about having Blake pull up. This is different from the the icon thing. There's a, a YouTube spot of a of an apologist for a non-Catholic interpretation of the faith, who says, appeals to that language, you know, when, when Christ sat down at the right hand of God, the work's done. When, when, when the worker sits down, the work is done. So the idea that we need to keep doing something in relation to this sacrifice business seems like it's contradicting these texts. Okay, so here's the question, top of page 3. Do texts like Hebrews 7 and 10 imply a contradiction between the idea that daily or repeated sacrifice is no longer necessary, on the one hand, and the idea that the Mass as a sacrifice is something Catholics celebrate daily and weekly, which we do? No, there's no contradiction because there is a difference, I should have said a relevant difference, difference that matters between what is going on at the Mass and what ancient Israelite priests were doing that Hebrews is, a, is talking about. So Hebrews is talking about something that's different from what we're doing at the Mass. The sacrificial system in ancient Israel required a different, that is, another, literally, an other, sacrifice each time. By contrast, each and every Catholic Mass is the same one-time sacrifice Christ offered on Calvary. Not offered again, but the same one re-presented as the same offering, into which we come and enter again, and from which we benefit again. So it's, it's not repeated. We're the ones repeatedly returning to it. It's, the once, it's almost like a, an eternal moment. And to come to the Mass is to re-enter ourselves into that eternal moment. So we're not repeating the sacrifice. Yeah, go ahead, Lisa. I'm trying to... We're not actually performing the sacrifice again. It's not, yeah, it's not... We are representing the same sacrifice. Yeah. The sacrifice is one and done. We're just... Or once and everlasting. Once and everlasting. I prefer, I prefer yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're on the same wavelength there. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's actually, you might hear that from a non-Catholic perspective. Well, it's one and done, so what's the deal? And we might say, well, no, it's one and everlasting. And we're invited to keep participating or coming back again and again. We keep sinning, 
And we don't need Jesus to die again. We just need to come back and say sorry and, 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 and offer ourselves, you know, become part of this again, this eternal moment. I, I thought of a better way to say um, it's not repeated. Uh, we're repeated. Oh, I'll think of it later and I'll come up with it. I don't, after I typed that line and printed 25 copies, I thought this is what happens, you know, when you're a really nerdy uh, guy like you can't get, get stuck on something. I think, oh, that could have said it better, but it's too late now. Uh, anyway, consider also the institution of the Passover, which we talked about a bit ago, as the corresponding sacrifice in Exodus 12, wherein the Passover blood of the sacrificial lamb is not to be consumed. This is an interesting difference but applied to the external doorposts and lintels of the house. You ever thought about the blood in Exodus 12? You read the story. So the cross beam and the vertical beams. So you've got this clear resonating image imagery. And, it's, and that blood is what marks that house in this cross-shaped pattern. <laughs> it marks the house and protects all who are inside of it. There's something of grace that's administered to it, right? It saves the Israelites from the angel of death. Okay, in the Lord's Supper, halfway down that paragraph, Christ's offering of himself sacrificially, the Eucharistic blood of the true Lamb of God is consumed and thereby applied to this house. This house to save us from the dominion of Satan and to communicate, which just means to deliver the grace of supernatural life. Well, Chad, if it means deliver, why don't you just say deliver? We talk about communion and we are communicants and this is what is communicated to us. We're just sticking with the lingo. So I, I like the word communicated. You know, it delivers something to us. So that part in the mass, I've got a nice picture there for you. When the priest holds, and he's actually ad orientum. People know what that means? To the east, yeah, facing away from the kind he almost the effect is he's leading us as the troop toward heaven, right? And we're following the priest, and he holds aloft the, the the consecrated host and says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." And by the way, that word "behold" that's a command. It's an order, and. And we're, we're being instructed to do something. So when I, when I converted back in 2011, I hadn't thought that one through. And I always, this is like the holiest moment in the Mass. And so I would bow my head, right? No, I'm supposed to be looking up. I'm supposed to be seeing what's going on. I've been told to look. Lift up your eyes and see. Um, it's what Abraham does on the third day when God tells him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Uh, he, he journeys toward the mountain where God told him uh, that he, to do this thing. And on the third day, he looks up and he sees the place. And then later on, of course, God shows up and provides the lamb, the male lamb, for the sacrifice. And, and there's a neat wordplay in Genesis 22. In the place where God sees to it that things will be taken care of, he is seen. And that plays into this moment. Behold the Lamb of God. Uh, we're to look up and we're to see. God is seeing to things, our sins, and, and the corruption of the world. And even as he's seeing to it in this activity, we are seeing him. So when the priest, next time you're at Mass, and the priest says, Behold, make sure your eyes are open and you're looking up. 
And behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. And then what do we say? Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. So there's that house imagery again. Like, I'm not worthy to have this blood come into me, into this house, but only say the word and we're square. And, I, you know, and, and, and it'll be done. Where does that come from? Anybody know? Trick question. It's on the next page. Matthew 8. <laughs> A centurion, yeah. So here it is. If you haven't heard the story, we're going to read it. When he entered Capernaum, Jesus, that is, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. And just pause just for a second. So this is a centurion has a servant who lives in his home. There's a sense, so lives inside the house, uh, cloistered inside. And this servant is crucial to the ongoing life and ways of the centurion in the way that our soul is for us, just to spoil it. He said to him, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. So there's a play on servant and soul here. So what's going on. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does. He's got these other soldiers, right? But this servant, they don't live in his house, the soldiers. The servant lives in the house. It's more intimate. There's a, a bond or a relationship here that's, that exceeds the relationship he has with these other soldiers. And so you're getting the idea that the servant's a real person. This is a real event that really happened. Centurion's a real person, I take it. Uh, I'm not a historian, but there's no reason to think this is just a parable, right? Um, but the servant, even though the servant's a real person, stands for something thicker, more than just, you know, the historical meaning. There's a deeper spiritual reality that, that's coming across here. I say to one, go, and he goes, and another come, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word as you did this to the centurion and my the, the servant interior to my life that is my soul will be healed and we trust in faith that we receive the same response the centurion did so that's a cry of faith and we we trust in faith that it is responded to by christ with a word and i haven't paused at that moment when i'm at mass i don't know how it goes for you but I kind of want to have a sense that Christ is calling me forward. Yeah, it, it's okay for you to come. I mean, I've done an examination of conscience. I'm caught up on my confession generally. Um, sometimes there are venial sins, and I, you know, I want to be mindful about that. And I think that maybe we're a little cavalier sometimes, we Catholics, and think, well, you know, I don't want to be the only one in my row that doesn't stand up to go. That's going to be awkward. I'll look foolish. People will wonder, oh, what did he do? You know, 
I don't want them thinking that. So it's pride. So that's terrible reasoning. That's a bad reason to get up and go. You just got to have the moxie at that point to sit down or stay seated or whatever. If, if, if you're not prepared, if there's any uncertainty, it might be better to wait between you and, and God. But at that moment, I, I, I say a prayer and, and, you know, invite myself to be invited. And uh, generally, it's, it's wonderfully blissful to, to have that sense, yes, my son come forward or my daughter come forward. Okay, Holy Communion. Um, because by this sacrament, we, we unite ourselves to Christ who makes us sharers in his body and blood to form a single body. It's a communion. Back to Exodus 12. They weren't supposed to take any of the food outside the house and eat it. And they weren't supposed to break any of the bones of the sacrificed animal. And, and that's because it's one thing. It's not, um, it's not divisible. Um, I mean, obviously, practically speaking, you're, I suppose you're pulling chunks off it, right? But, but the idea, of, there's supposed to be some way to represent that, that it stays together in one house. Holy Mass, this is interesting, if you haven't, if you haven't known this. Mass from the Latin Missa, because the liturgy in which the mystery of salvation is accomplished concludes with the sending forth, which in Latin would be missio, looks like mission, right? So this is a mission that we're, we're on so that we may fulfill God's will in our daily lives. And maybe more than that, so that we go out from the Mass into the world. And our job now as, as vice regents that have received the Lord into ourselves is to go out and expand the beachhead. To, to go, I'm mixing metaphors rather badly, but to go out and wage war uh, in a peaceful way. To witness, to bear witness, to evangelize, to grab others and say, hey, I just had this most amazing gift and you need it too, uh, until the whole world is healed. So G.K. Chesterton has um, a nice way of putting it. He's a British author. Uh, Our job as Catholics is, is to go from the Mass and to make the outside like, to make it outside like it is inside. So to basically to work the church out of a job, so to speak, so that, it, that the walls of the church just keep getting bigger and bigger until we envelop the world. That's our job as evangelists. And Father Clark is one of his charisms, his evangelization, I think. So this is a great place to learn how to do that and plug in. Anyway, uh, moving along. Why do Catholics refer to the Eucharist as the source and summit of the faith? It's the source and summit of the Christian life, it says the Catechism. The other sacraments, here's why, the other sacraments and indeed all ecclesiastical, that just means churchly ministries and works of the apostolate, are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. So it's like the sun. Pun. The Eucharist is the S-O-N, right? Or S-U-N, around which all the other sacraments are planetary, you know, orbiting and drawn and and tethered to the gravity of the sun. Uh, Let's find out about that word efficacious. The Eucharist is the efficacious sign. Anybody know what efficacious means? It will do what it's intended to do. It will accomplish what it's sent out to do. 
it's a, it will not fail. It's the efficacious sign, the achieving sign and sublime cause of that communion in the divine life and that unity of the people of God by which the church is kept in being. If you keep eating this and being nourished by it, the church will persist. If it stops, it won't. We have to eat to live. Finally, by the Eucharistic celebration, I realize I'm skipping little bits here. I want to leave time. Lots of time for questions and discussion if we want. I've got some um, Eucharistic miracles we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, yeah, so I don't want to rush through this, but I feel like it's, yeah, with all that I could have just read. Anyway, by the Eucharistic celebration, we already unite ourselves with the heavenly liturgy and anticipate eternal life when God will be all in all. Let me just unpack that. What's going on in the Mass is, I'm not a sci-fi guy. So, and if you are, um, I, I don't know how you'll think about this, but I, the word portal comes to mind where, you know, like in a science fiction movie, uh, between two realms. That's kind of what's going on at the Mass. I don't want to be hokey, but th the Mass is the moment where the, and I think I've said stuff like this in the class before, where these two realms, the heavenly realm where God resides and from which he orders the earthly realm, uh, which is the other realm, in this moment of the Mass, these two realms are interfacing. <laughs> and in a way that we, are, we can be keenly aware of the heavenly presence of our Lord, of the angels, of the saints that have come before us. And um, whether we're paying attention or not, this is what's happening, whether we feel it or not. That's a very special moment. Uh, and the Eucharist is at the center of that, that self-giving of the sun to those here below, below, through the veil, let's say. And so we're, we're united in the heavenly liturgy in that moment. Uh, we've been talking about sacraments. We've talked about them in class. Remind me, what is it again? We often use the word sign to explain what a sacrament is, but I want to be clear about something. A sacrament is a sign in the sense that it signals, which even has the word sign in it, that there's a mystery afoot. So with that sense in view, the sentence, a sacrament is an outward sign, means a sacrament is something that points to a mysterious reality that is actually taking place as the sacrament is being enacted. But, letter A, a sacrament is a sign, that phrase, a sacrament is a sign, should not be taken to mean that the, that the whole sacrament is merely a symbol or a representation of an idea that Christians cherish. Calling baptism, for example, a sacrament in Catholic understanding is different from saying that it merely points to a theological idea or that it merely represents something in the relationship between God and the one who was baptized. Baptism is efficacious. It does something. Something happens between heaven and earth. An exchange is made. A washing, not just of the body, but of the soul, takes place through the physical means of water. And I, so it's not just a sign that's pointing to something. It's actually doing something. Similarly, calling the Eucharist a sacrament in the Catholic tradition means more than sign. It's an event during which, for a few blissful moments, two separate realms, which I just explained, heaven, God's space, and earth, 
our space, are actually joined together in the same space at the same time. And that happens whether we're feeling it, you know, whether there's a burning in our bosom or not, uh, whether the kids are crying or we're you know, tending to this disaster or that one, it's happening. And it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not contingent or dependent on our being all caught up, you know, in ecstasy at the moment. What's at stake? Well, goodness. Um, if it's not true, all the stuff I'm saying, then the idea of worshiping the host and lauding, you know, giving glory to it, that's bredolatry. I'm not sure who coined that word, but I thought it was pretty clever. Right? Idolatry, false idol worship, but it's bread. And, and if you don't believe it's happening, so you believe all that's in front of you is just bread, and you're worshiping it, then I guess that means you're performing breadolatry. But if it is true, that means that Jesus has intended to share himself with you and me and all of us in this way, that this is his intention, his desire, is to give himself to us in this way. And if we're not receiving him in this way, we're not getting all that we should be getting of Jesus. We're not one with Jesus in the way he wants to be one with us. So that's what's at stake if it is true. Uh, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I just th This is what brought us into the church, really, in 2011. I just couldn't any longer. I realized this is what the Catholic Church thought. I didn't have any good arguments against it. And, uh, you know, as scandalous as this is going to be for my work, I was teaching at a biblical studies institute, a Protestant one at the time, Probably have to shut the place down. <laughs> Most of our don't, you know, our funding was from Protestant sources. As soon as they find out there's a Catholic on staff, you know, we yank the donations, and that's eventually kind of what happened. Um, not just because of my conversion, but other things too. Oh seven, oh eight was a bad year for the housing market, if you recall. <laughs> so a lot of our heavier hitters were yanking anyway. But that was kind of the nail in the coffin, maybe. Um, yeah, what, but whatever you have to do to to answer, I think, to to respond to truth um, as you as you find it, um, you do it, or you're living a false life. I think that's where kind of where I was, kind of crisis. So um, something I'm not a big Eucharistic miracle guy. I'm you know I'm more of a give it to me in a book with a good argument and you know or in a classroom. That's sort of how I roll. Um, but I'm fascinated by some of these that seem to be more compelling. And I don't deny that they, that they happen, and, and they can be actually great aids to our faith uh, if we're struggling with doubts. So here's one. The miracle of Lanciano, I think is how you'd say that, in 8th century. According to tradition, a lot of this is paraphrased or adapted from sources. So according to tradition, a monk who had doubts about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist found when he said the words of consecration at Mass that the bread and wine changed into flesh and blood. And the Catholic Church officially claims the miracle as authentic. Uh, you can see the, a picture of the, or maybe, that might be the real thing, I'm not sure, the chalice on the right side there, and then an image on the left of the, of the top down, uh, the globules in the, in the picture on the right. The alleged miracle is, miracle is usually described roughly as follows. In the city of Lanciano, Italy, then known as uh, Anxanum, probably butchered it, sometime in the 700s, a Basilian monk in residence was assigned to celebrate Mass at the monastery of St. Longinus, or Longinus. 
Celebrating in the Roman Rite and using unleavened bread, the monk had doubts about the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. So during the Mass, when he said the words of consecration, this is my body, this is my blood, the priest saw the bread change into living flesh and the wine changed into blood, which coagulated into five globules, irregularly and differing in shape and size. The alleged miracle was contemporaneously investigated and confirmed by the church, though no documents from this investigation are extant. So it's a tradition that's been passed down. We don't have the original documents. We don't have a lot of the original documents of the scriptures either. We have photo images of ones that, you know, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's not a problem for me with regard to the scriptures. I don't think it should be a problem with us with regard to scientific investigations either necessarily. Anyway, various investigations have tried to assess the relics with varying results. With the development of scientific capabilities over the centuries, one set of measurements were made in 1574 by uh, Archbishop Antonio Gaspar Rodriguez, who determined that the blood divided into five unequal parts, th sorry, the blood divided into fi five unequal parts weighs as much altogether as each does separately, which is sometimes referred to as the miracle of the weights. So that's, that's kind of strange, right? You weigh one globule, and, it's, and then you add the other ones, and it doesn't get any heavier. <laughs> yeah, 71 specimens were analyzed by, I'm never going to get that one right, uh, Linoli, a professor in anatomy and pathological histo histology, as well as chemistry and clinical microscopy, and former head of the laboratory of that place in Arezzo. He published his results in that journal, was confirmed in 81. Um, Etc. Just kind of heaping up evidence of examination and re-examination. Even had the, the, the tissue of type AB, the tissue type. Um, so they, they verified that it was legit flesh, uh, heart tissue. Just fascinating. Uh, I meant, 4.2, I meant to bring an icon we have at home uh, of St. Peregrine. It's my daughter's, Priya. She's our fifth daughter. She developed cancer in 2000. Um, 13, early. Uh, and then that summer we spent at Children's Hospital. She was two at the time. No, she was one. Yeah, she turned two in the next year, 2014. Um, so we spent the summer at Children's Hospital and part of the fall. And she went underwent a bunch of chemotherapy treatments and they sh uh, shrank it. And then they were able to resect it. Just means to, to get it out, the tumor from her stomach. And she's been in remission ever since. I think she did another round of chemo after the resection, but she's been good. She's suffered other physical maladies because of the chemo, um, but we'll take the trade, <laughs> right? So Peregrine's a big deal to us. He's the patron of cancer patients and survivors. Let's uh, read a little bit about his story here. Peregrine Laziozzi, or Laziozzi, was born of a wealthy family at Forli, Italy in 1260. As a youth, he was active in politics as a member of the anti-papal party. So he's like, like Saul, right? Whose name was changed to Paul. He's, he's the church hater. During one uprising, which the Pope sent St. Philip Benizzi to, meditate, to mediate, excuse me, Philip was struck in the face by Peregrine. When Philip offered the other cheek, Peregrine was so overcome that he repented and converted to Catholicism. Following the instructions of the Virgin Mary received in a vision, he went to Siena and joined the Servites. It's believed that he never allowed himself to sit down for 30 years while as far as possible 
observing silence and solitude. Sometime later, he was sent to Forley to found a new house of the Servite order. An ideal priest, he had a reputation for fervent preaching and being a good confessor. It means a good priest who receives confessions, uh, good advice, good counsel, approachable probably. Returning to his hometown, he founded a new Servite house and became well known for his preaching and holiness as well as his devotion to the sick and poor. One of the special penances he imposed on himself was standing whenever it was necessary, when it was, when it was not necessary to sit. Over time, he developed varicose veins and, in turn, cancer of the foot, or the leg, as the pictures will show. The wound became painful and diseased, and all medical treatment failed. The local surgeon determined amputation of the leg was called for. But tradition has it that the night before surgery was scheduled, Peregrine spent much time in prayer before the crucified Jesus, asking God to heal him if it was his will to do so. Falling asleep at one point, he had a vision of the crucified Jesus leaving the cross and touching his cancerous leg, like coming down. And, and when he awoke, the wound was healed and his foot and leg seemingly miraculously cured were saved, and he lived another 20 years with it. Um, just his obituary on the next page. So yeah, it's, uh, we have uh, said a lot of prayers to St. Peregrine in our family and as have many others. Um, someone bought us that icon, which we uh, very much appreciate. I don't remember whom. Thought it might be fun just to, I'm really cruising through, so we have lots of time. Maybe we'll get out early. We're not doing, uh, not after hours tonight, even though it is the right Thursday. We rushed it last week because it was a feast day last week. Yeah, ah, that works. Well, we can talk if we want. Here are some possible challenges. Is it always efficacious, the Eucharist? Or can it be rendered inert? Like, if someone without faith eats and drinks the consecrated bread and wine, does he or she still receive the body and blood of Christ? Well, let's break it down a little bit. If to receive means to consume, then the answer is yes. For what the person consumes is the body and blood of Christ. If to receive means to accept the body and blood of Christ knowingly and willingly as what they are so as to obtain the spiritual benefit, then the answer is no. A lack of faith on the part of the person eating and drinking the body and blood cannot change what they are, but it does prevent the person from obtaining the spiritual benefit, which is communion with Christ. Such reception of Christ's body and blood would be in vain, and if done knowingly, it would be sacrilegious. Reception of the Blessed Sacrament is not an automatic remedy. If we do not desire communion with Christ, God does not force it upon us. Rather, we must by faith accept God's offer of communion in Christ and in the Holy Spirit and cooperate with God's grace in order to have our hearts and minds transformed and our faith and love of God increased. Um, when I was down at SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature, it's a major society. Anybody who's, who's involved in biblical or Semitic studies at any level meets somewhere in North America every year, this big society meeting for a better part of a week. Uh, massive conference, like 20,000, 30,000 people come to this thing. Um, Christians, Jews, Hasidic Jews walking around in you know, robes, um, Muslims, like just everybody is there. And... Uh, and while we were there, Casey and I went, Casey and my wife, went to Mass, and we were joined by my now professor and, uh, and, a, and a mutual friend, colleague, who I didn't know at the time, but had, was formerly Catholic, 
when we met in England years ago, he was reformed. Um, and then since then, he's been ordained in the Anglican communion. So he switched from reformed to Anglican. And that's, that, that's the part of the story I knew. I didn't realize that before he was reformed, he was Catholic and he'd lapsed out. And, um, and while we were there, he, he came to Mass with us. And he got in line behind me. I didn't know this. But they were sitting to our right. And so Casey and I thought, well, we won't make him do the Protestant, you know. And, uh, and while the Catholics get up and go around. So we just went to the next row and walked up behind the people to get in line, you know, that were going up. Anyway, my friend uh, is, uh, is behind me. And, uh, and the other gentleman, my professor, uh, said, you're going up? This is not done. And he said, well, I want to commune. I really want to commune. And I think for him, he absolutely believes that it is the body and blood. And he wants to receive it, even though he's not uh, in good standing with the Catholic Church. So this is, Casey and I have talked about this a ton. I've meant to bring it up with you and just say, how do you navigate that? Uh, he believes what the Catholic Church teaches about it. He doesn't feel at liberty to leave his position as an Anglican priest, even though there is the ordinariate. Uh, I don't also don't think that familially that uh, the family is ready yeah, at a place where that could happen. But he's so drawn that, and there's no you know, mental block. So I don't know what happens there. I, don't, I have to ask Father Clark or somebody who's, um, or maybe a canon lawyer. I don't know. But do you have a thought, Blake? Or? I mean, he should be confirmed. Yeah. That's what needs to happen. Well, or... He, sorry, he yeah, he should he should just go to confession and be received back into the church. Yeah. Um, but that would represent a whole series of steps of fallout. So it's a it's a tough one, a real tough one. Um, we can sit on that. If a believer, letter B, who is conscious, here's another challenge: of, conscious of having committed a mortal sin, eats and drinks the consecrated bread and wine, does he or she still receive the body and blood of Christ? A little, a little more tenderly here. Yes. The attitude or disposition of the recipient cannot change what the consecrated bread and wine are. The question here is thus not primarily about the nature of the real presence, but about how sin affects the relationship between an individual and the Lord. Before one steps forward to receive our Lord in Holy Communion. One needs to be in a right relationship with the Lord and his mystical body, the church, that is, in a state of grace, free of all mortal sin. While sin damages and can even destroy that relationship, the sacrament of penance can restore it. St. Paul tells us that a person should examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. This is kind of accenting the other part of examine. Anyone who is conscious of having committed a mortal sin should be reconciled through the sacrament of penance before receiving our Lord, unless a grave reason exists for doing so, and there's no opportunity for confession. In this case, the person is to be mindful of the obligation to make an act of perfect contrition, that is, an act of sorrow, for sins that arises, the act arises from a love by which God is loved above all else. That's what a perfect act of contrition means. It must be accompanied by the firm intention of making a sacramental confession as soon as possible. So when we talk about the Eucharist being efficacious, the danger is that if one is in a state of mortal sin, 
and goes forward to present anyway, light and dark can't be in the same place at the same time. It doesn't work. Um, and I, I cite the case, the, the terrible fate of Judas. And I don't, not to not to give you nightmares, but in Matthew 26, we um, read about Judas. Um, well, the 25, 24, 25, 26. There's this. He's he develops a plot to betray Jesus. You'll remember the story, and he takes thirty pieces of silver to do this. Sanhedrin puts him up to it, and Jesus knows this is going to happen. And he, Judas, is one of the twelve, and he's at the table with Jesus. And Jesus mentions that he knows that one of you is going to betray me, and they each ask, one after the other, is it I, Lord? Is it I? And, uh, and it comes to Judas, and he says, is it I, Rabbi? I think that's so fascinating that he doesn't call him Lord at that moment. He calls him teacher. But of course, in what sense is he in a place of, of being willing to be taught by Jesus? You know, his heart is hard. It's full of sin at this moment. And, and Jesus says, and it's much more clipped in the Greek than in the English. Um, you said it. That's, that's what it says. It's literally, you said it. And, and it's the one who, who dips. So they dip. Everybody receives. Judas also receives. So Judas' heart is full of sin, and he receives the Lord's body, blood, soul, and divinity into his own body, blood, soul, and humanity. And he goes out from there. And he's overcome with consternation and stress, and he realizes he made a big mistake. So he goes back to the Sanhedrin to try and return and, and be absolved. But Jesus is nowhere in the same way he has to the disciples, or will, he has not authorized the Sanhedrin to absolve sins. So they're not in any position to take care of this with him sacramentally. We can't do anything for you. And they just rebuff him. What, what is that to us? So he goes out from there and he hangs himself. We're told, that's the end of the story in the Gospels. In Acts, we're told that he falls headlong. And I'm sorry, this is, this is kind of rated R, but it's in the Bible. <laughs> and he bursts. He bursts open um, from the gut. And, and, and yeah, I'll just leave it at that. It's more graphic in the text. And, um, and the question is, why are we told those details? And how do we account? Like, is this a contradiction in the scriptures? Because we were told he, he hanged himself. So did he die by hanging or did he die by <laughs> evisceration? Well, I, I think that they're not incompatible. Uh, he hanged himself and that's how he died. But he does so. He hangs himself from a tree. And the timeline of this would be right about the same time as Christ himself is dying on the tree. And, um, and at the time of Christ's own death, what happens? There's a huge earthquake, right? And it's so powerful that the rocks are splitting apart, tombs are opening up, and people are rising from the dead and walking out, and they're being seen by all these people. An earthquake so powerful that rocks split apart would certainly be powerful enough to uproot a tree. Or, you know, if it wasn't a good rope, maybe the rope broke or the branch broke or something. Anyway, he falls. There's no contradiction there because of the earthquake. Any, any, but why are we told that detail? Why, why do we need to know that he burst? Well, and then you, you recollect that 
Jesus talks about putting new wine into an old wineskin, how no one does that. That's just terrible. That's a terrible idea. Because if you do that, the old wineskin will burst. Mary is like the foil or the counter to Judas. She also receives the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord, of God, into her body at the moment of Gabriel's Annunciation, right? And she's fine because, as we understand, she's been preserved from the stain of original sin since her conception. So she's a fit vessel, a, a new wineskin, so to speak. That's her condition. She's a fit vessel to contain the holiness, the light of God. In her is light, and so light comes into light. Judas is full of sin. She's full of grace. And you put something that's perfectly holy and righteous in a place that's full of sin, something's got to give. And for Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, which we read a bit ago, and I really don't want to end on a downer, but it's a big deal. This is why he's discerning that some illnesses and even deaths have taken place. Because, Or just think to yourself, there are times when maybe life it seems like it's coming apart or the, the, the wheels are falling off. Rolodex back through the times that you've received, maybe maybe you haven't bit, been entirely ready to receive. And maybe that the present stress or uh, upside-downness of life is the result. God's trying to get you to notice something. You need to take care of something. And you've received me into yourself, and you've not been prepared. And so what you're experiencing right now is the upside-downness of your state is a result of this dissonance, this tension that's the result of, of receiving in an unworthy manner. And uh, yeah, so that's it's just a possibility. The scriptures present it to us. We should think about it. Um, anyway, it's a big deal. But on the flip side, of course, let's end on a high note. It is the absolute greatest thing that we can receive into our life. And it's the greatest faith booster when we do receive in a worthy manner. Nothing you can do uh, exceeds the value of receiving this sacrament in your life with, with God. I'll leave it at that. Stop talking. Open it up to you. Thanks for your patience. You said at one point that this is why you converted it. Were you like longing to preserve it? <clears throat> yeah, and, and it wasn't, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the longing came later. It was the real, the intellectual realization that Jesus wants to give himself to me this way. And I want to receive Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe that he's the one through whom the whole world was made. He's the one that I want to be one with. And if this is the way he wants to share himself with me, and I'm not able to have him that way, then I'm the one who's impoverished. And I, I'm missing a bunch. Yeah. And that was when my sister came in the same way. She was in tears with my dad one night uh, down in Platte City. He's like, if Chad's right about this whole Catholic thing, then we have not been receiving Jesus the way Jesus wants to give himself to us. And we, we got to do something about this. All right. <laughs> She's pretty exercised. She gets, yeah. So, yeah, that was the... And, and, but then Ash Wednesday was the first time we ever attended Mass, 2011. Of course, we didn't receive. But being at the Mass, 
throughout Lent that year. Man, every time. Um, I'm not sure how many times I went forward to receive the blessing or what, but or just stayed back. But it, the longing intensified because I knew what I was ramping up to go get. So we practiced communion um, just as a a kind of ritual devotion to the Lord, but it wasn't believed either by the pastor or any of the congregants that what was going on here was uh, was efficacious in any way. It didn't deliver anything to us. It was just, we were doing this out of obedience. Jesus said, um, you know, for as long as, as many times you do this, you do it in memory of me, or do this in memory of me. So following the command to do this in memory of me, we're being obedient, but only about once a month or so. Right. Yeah. But it's just a symbol. It's just a, and I don't want to say this disrespectfully or um, or dismissively, I, but I want to use the word charade. It's an act that is just a charade with no actual content. Um, so again, I'm not trying to be dismissive with that word, but I think it's a good word to use in the technical sense of the term charade. Um, it, there's a strong belief that nothing is happening here. If If you thought something was happening here, on what grounds do you suppose that it is? Because none of the pastors who are celebrating this were authorized to do so by those who were authorized in the room that night or any of their... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, I had another question on here. We don't have to get into it, but this kind of gets to why uh, the Catholic Church insists on an all-male priesthood. Jesus does two things that night in the upper room. He, he instates two sacraments, the sacrament of the Eucharist, but also the sacrament of holy orders. Um, when he says to those who are there, what he's doing, he's modeling this rite, R-I-T-E, this ritual, uh, so they know how it goes. And when he says, do this, he's saying, all of this that you see me having modeled, I want you guys, I'm commissioning you to do this. When I'm gone, you're going to be the ones who do this. So I'm authorizing you. And he's authorized them also to make disciples and to teach them all that he has commanded. So when they pass on their authorization to the next generation of priests and bishops and so on, because they were all men, and that's part of the form of the this, when Jesus says, do this in memory of me, they're passing it on to other men because that's the form that it was in the upper room. So that's, it's just maintaining the form that Jesus passed on. It's not a sexist thing. It's, this is what Jesus did, and we're just doing it like he did it, both in terms of the Eucharist, but also in terms of ordinations, because both of those happened that night. So that's that, that logic. Should we pray? We lost our Father. <laughs> Anything else? Good? Going once, twice? All right. We can chat after if you need. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, thank you so much for this gift. You are a good and gracious God, and we're, we're thankful that you have included us in your family, or are including us and in calling us to be included. Um, we pray that you will continue to draw each of us uh, uh, closer to yourself, and those we know whom we love, Please continue to draw them as well in ways um, beyond what you've already done. 
We ask in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit these things. Amen. closer to yourself, and those we know whom we love, please continue to draw them as well in ways um, beyond what you've already done. We ask in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.